City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, acres and acres, and here we are. It's uh, City Limits. I didn't ride over the acres and acres this morning with the weather. I caught public transport, and as a result, I got here disgustingly early to the studio, which is a terrible thing. Um, Lynn Drummond over there, she's pressing buttons. Lynn, how are you? Oh, well, but I've still got the cough, believe it or not. Oh, uh, God, it hangs around. <coughs> and I was oh, yeah, in a different present, climate yeah. at the a different climate up in the mountains at the weekend. I was heaps better, better so maybe it's Melbourne. <laughs> Could well be. In fact, a friend of mine um, moved out. Well, she actually moved from Melbourne, and when she was living in the bush at Torquay, she or not, I don't know you call Torquay the bush, but down the, down the sea, um, she when she did come to Melbourne, she really noticed the difference in air quality. So. You, put me up, you might well be right. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's hope I don't cough during the hour. Well, <laughs> you, you gave a cough a minute ago to prove you still got it. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm Kevin Healy, by the way, and Andy's over there also in the studio. Andy puts up his hand. There he is. Okay. I'm going to pour myself a cup of tea. Um, I've just, Lindy, you just, you just passed me a, um, a note we've got here that tomorrow night there's quite an important meeting, um, and I'll just read a bit of it. Um, Community group on pouring tea. Oh, oh, people have to hear this, don't they? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll put it up there. Anyway, hang on. Right. It's a little Vietnamese green tea this morning. You'll be pleased to know people. Um, community groups across Melbourne are joining their voices demanding a review of Transurban's unsolicited bid, that in parentheses, that will lock in the West to trucks on local roads and tolls. And the recent announcement by the Victorian government that comes amid claims that the Transurban consultation is a sham and promises of trucks off local roads are promises this government can't keep. A community forum has been organised to hear from experts and politicians, Colleen Hearth and MLC, Dr Diane Keogh from QUT on air pollution, uh, Dr Tony Morton on freight options and William, Mr William McDougall, UK transport planning expert on Melbourne's ports and passenger transport needs. And that's tomorrow night at the RSL Mary Street, Spotswood. Um, should people out there know it? Has it got an actual address down the bottom somewhere? Um, 16 Mary Street, Spotswood. Um, tomorrow night. For further information, you can call 0417 207 858 or 041840. Um, I'll get that right. 041840. Next week, mm, because next week's one. transport anyway on this station, so on this program, so we'll follow up next week. Mm. Yeah, mm. sip of tea. Um, this morning on the program, by the way, it is a fourth Wednesday of the month. We haven't got anything specific, but we have got things specific because we're going to be talking to Dave Kerrin, who many listeners will know is a long time activist, particularly in around trade union areas. Um, and um, Dave's part of a a um, organisation uh, protesting about the changes to the Victoria market that's going to be held this Friday. A protest. There's a there's a promotion for it on this station going on at the moment, and we'll discuss that and why they're protesting. 
And um, that's in the first half of the show. In the second half, we're going to talk to um, Paddy Moriarty, Professor Moriarty these days, as we know, out at Monash um, about aspects of... Uh, of renewable energy and uh, the battery storage situation everyone's talking about and uh, whether it is viable or not, etc. So we'll have a discussion around all those issues in today's program, Lynn. So there we are. It's pretty well, good. That sounds a good one. Mm. Yeah, always always sounds a good one, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, always a good one. Yes. Yeah. <coughs> Look, sometimes though you've got to you've got to bleed for them. Um, there's been a proposal to uh, cut back on the advertising bans on sporting events on television. Uh, the ab- sorry, advertising for gambling on sporting events because the ubiquitous, as we know, that, you know, all the time. Um, but the the broadcasters um, are most upset. They could take a significant cut to the estimated 120 to 150 million spent by wagering companies if the government bans gambling and. Uh, so you've got to think about it, haven't you? That you know, if it has that impact, well, maybe we should just keep going and let people lose their money at a great rate. And uh, oh, great yeah. shame, yeah. 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 Okay. Poor yes. buggers, poor mm. buggers. I raised this one on the on the day after Anzac Day because in my local paper this week, there's a headline: "Fear of what lies beneath Agent Orange concerns at old factory sites," and it says the EPA will be asked to inspect a former pesticide factory site in Faulkner that is contaminated with chemicals found in Agent Orange. Land at uh, McBride Street was formerly owned by New Farm Limited, which processed herbicides, etc., and uh, and there's now moves to redevelop the site, but it's, you know, like so many of these sites, it's so poisonous, there's all sorts of problems with it, and, uh, and how do you clean it up? It's one of those ones, I think, where the company, as usual, walks away with the profits and the, the community's left with the, uh, the clean-up with thing. The mess, but yeah. I raise that because it does mention Agent Orange, of course, and while America is screaming and yelling about using uh, chemical weapons, and no one should, no one's suggesting anyone should, but uh, there is enormous hypocrisy in the country that dropped all that Agent Orange on Vietnam, and from which Vietnam has not yet recovered. I mean, people are still suffering genetic illnesses, etc., because of... Uh, because of Agent Orange, plus, of course, the image of that young, the famous photo of the, the young and girl girl's. running through the mm. street uh, burning with napalm, um, which they used when it, it, its, its entire aim was to burn people literally, and uh, and they destroyed the countryside. So um, you just have to, want yet again, boggle at the... At the uh, hypocrisy the of these people. The foolishness of it, yes. yes. And the foolishness and the, the sheer hypocrisy of America complaining. And, of course, who makes most of the chemical, chemical weapons that are being used around the world? And uh, let's have another guess. Yeah, sheer, sheer hypocrisy, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Now, last week we mentioned the Herald Sun was screaming at the fact that Labor had appointed some Labor, a parachick, as they sort of put it, but it turned out it was a long-term public servant who may well have qualified for the job. But being a Labor person, this was wrong to go into any public position, whereas, as we said last week, you put it... Labor and 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 conservative or well, liberal governments always put conservatives into these positions, and there's never any screaming that this is a, this is the jobs for the girls or boys. But this week um, they did a unionist got it was given a job, and um, Ron Eddles, the ex head of the Police Association, that wonderfully radical union. Um, and he's been appointed to become the state's first community safety trustee, and the Herald Sun thinks that's absolutely wonderful with Ron. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
Ryan, of course, he's such a gentle-looking man, if anyone knows what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to meet Never mind. <laughs> dark let's, night. Let's be careful, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, that's that. I just thought I'd mention that one. And we'll go to, we'll go to Dave Kerrin shortly because we've got a fair bit to talk about on the market situation. But I just this is another one. There's, there's been some um, hearings into bankruptcy or some pre-bankruptcy hearings um, um, by bankruptcy trustees for Joe Gutnick. I remember right now, Diamond Joey was known as he head of the Melbourne Football Club years ago and was at one stage regarded as one of the richest men in Australia. He's now claiming poverty, etc. The whole the empire has collapsed, the Diamond Empire primarily, and he claims he's living on 45000 a year. But one of the little facts that came out of the, uh, of the inquiry was that his wife, uh, works a few hours a day as a trainee jewelry designer in his in one of his companies and gets paid two hundred eighty five thousand a year as a trainee jewelry designer. Good God! Yeah, so <laughs> Joe gets forty five, but she gets two eighty five, and um, one can assume that's just the tip of tip of in terms of because uh, all these people who uh, go bankrupt, these big business people, they say, "Isn't it terrible? I've hit the brick wall." Uh, they still seem to live the high life, don't they? They, they? they never seem to suddenly end up in the gutter, um, and and so you don't That's see them sitting in Elizabeth Street begging for food. Very or strange, that isn't it? Yeah, yes, yes, so. very strange, very strange. And just we'll do more on this next week with John McPherson as well. But the the Financial Review, which regularly conducts these these economic type summits, they're having a National Infrastructure Summit in June at the Sofitel Wentworth in Sydney. It should be a great day. We'll try and get there, of course. Um, and it's it's an association with Deloitte, so that proves that it's really going to be a working class structure. But they've got they've got they've got one, two, three, four, five, seven across the bottom by four, twenty-eight people listed as going to be speakers and the people you should have to listen to. And there's not one that I can see who represents one, the working class. They're all from big businesses who profit from infrastructure, a few government departments, but there's not one public, there's roads departments, but not one public transport department. The only mention of public transport is the manager of public transport and mobility at the RACV, uh, which in fact favours roads over public transport anyway. Uh, it's, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's, so there you are. I just thought I'd mention that. So it should be a great day and it's great to see and it probably proves that infrastructure now is the realm of the private sector and they determine what we need. Funnily, <laughs> interestingly enough, I was reading something today, I think about, it was either today or yesterday, about uh, Trump mm-hmm. eyeing um, Australia's infrastructure Plan, planning, etc., and wanting to learn some lessons from us. Oh. Now, how about that? I wonder if yeah. Malcolm will be talking about that when he sees him oh, I, soon. I'd, I'd send Jeff Kennett over with him. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, that'd sort that out for him. Yeah. No, he, he, he did a great job in that area. Um, okay, look, we'll take a break. Come back. Better have a yarn to Dave Kerrin about this protest on Queen Vic Market. CR presents a great night of entertainment at Bella Union, Thursday the 27th of April. Jonathan Alley will MC a stellar lineup, including... 3CR DJs Kate and Susie spinning tracks for a lazy Thursday night. Fiona Scott Norman's one-woman show, The Needle and the Damage Done. Ian McFarlane's book launch of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop Music. And an unleashed version of Super Flutie's free association radio show, with Clem Basto, Casey Bonetto, Scott Edgar and Christos Chorkas. 
That's Saturday, the 27th of... Thursday, the 27th of April, Bella Union at Trades Hall. Doors open at 6.30. For tickets, go to bellaunion.com.au or at the door if not sold out. This is a 3CR benefit. So see you there. Okay, we're back online. Yes, we are. Dave Kerrin um, is, is online, and uh, Dave, of course, um, what, what are you calling yourself on this t- this one, Dave? Because you've, oh, you've been in so many groups over the years. Uh, what, what's the title today? Oh, look, uh, just, uh, you know, friend of the uh, Queen Victoria market. Okay, yeah, I know. Well, I, I, I know, Dave, because I go there most Saturday mornings, and I know a year, up, up until you went to the bush, etc., used to go there every Saturday morning and meet with people, etc., and it, it is a great spot, isn't it? Look, it really is, and uh, the contribution it's made to the life of Melbourne as a city and continues to make, you, you couldn't repeat it. It's one of the last places right. like this left in Australia. Yeah. Just recently, though, um, the go- the um, the government and, and the Melbourne City Council with uh, Robert Doyle, the wonderful Lord Mayor, uh, and the federal government have talked about putting it on the National Heritage List. Um, does that overcome your problems? <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing because... Uh, Freudenberg and uh, and uh, Mayor Doyle were down there the other day and uh, making the announcement and uh, but but and of course a number of things they didn't say was that uh, one I mean it's a very rigorous process the UNESCO uh, heritage listing uh, and they didn't explain that they intended to take part of the market apart uh, and do a massive uh, excavation and construction underground uh, and then and then try and put the the market back together again like a Lego set and, and still expect to get that listing. So clearly they're not, it's disingenuous, they're not really after the listing, they're after the politics of undercutting friends and uh, the National Union of Workers and others who are saying that the market should be left alone. But they all, they talk about protecting the old sheds, etc. Will the sheds go under this redevelopment you're talking about? Well, in effect they, they will, Kev, because they've got to take them down. Uh, and they reckon they're going to do that, maintain that, maintain them in a pristine condition, and then put them back up again. Oh, good now. idea! Yeah. Anyone who's been in construction is going to tell you that ain't going to happen. So, especially with all the materials. So mm. you know, it, 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 and then to refrigerate underground. Um, so all the fruit and veg goes from three days old to six weeks and older, and you, you end up with a sort of a, a supermarket rather than the open air working market. So, yeah. so the idea of listing it. Um, it's also that sense that you can list a, uh, a building without listing its purpose. Um, I mean, part of the, you know, those things are inseparable, of course, and people go there for the ambience and, and, and for the purpose that that ambience then offers the city, which is fresh food and affordable affordable food and goods. Mm. We had one of the traders on recently on City Limits um, to discuss this, and he his main objection was that they really didn't have much detail at all of what was going on. Uh, do we know much more now? I mean, do we really know what they're planning to do? Uh, absolutely. Well, again, uh, uh, we, we know bits and pieces because they've talked openly about it, but, it, but in terms of the whole systemic approach, no, uh, we, we don't, and they don't. Um, you know, so... It's a, it's a situation, I think, where um, the immediate uh, intentions are, are probably not the things we need to be looking at and rather that it's more of a land grab, that over time, mm. as, as the purpose of it changed and people dropped off even more, then they would redevelop the site, you know. Most of the objection has been levelled at this huge tower that's going to be next door. 
um, and overlook the market and overshadow the market. Uh, well, we'll come to that, but uh, surely for those who go there, and as you talk about the ambience we all love at the market, uh, the fear of losing that because of changes at the market side itself, that's much more dangerous for us, isn't it? It is indeed, and, and you know, that, uh, that that idea of the market as, as a meeting place, unlike a supermarket, um, you know, you don't gather together in the aisles of a supermarket and talk about family and friends and jobs and, mm. you know, social movement issues and, and that sort of thing, which is what happens at the market and has done for for, for decades. Um, so, you know, the, to put that at risk in the heart of the city, uh, where, apart from our parks, it's the only space where that can happen. Um, you know, that you'd have to say that's just treachery on the part of a of the, the QBM management, um, and, and I think, you know, they are the, <laughs> they're the toe cutters have been put in there to make these changes, and the responsibility rests with them. If they went back to the city council, uh, and, and indeed if they supported Dick Wynne in, in, in his concerns, if they went back to city council and said, look, we are on the wrong tram here, it's quite obvious that people don't want this, so we need to go meet with the people, work out what it is they want, and get on with the business. Mm. The QBN managers, are they appointed by the council or who? Yeah, by council. They're responsible to council. And, so um, Robert Doyle appoints people who then recommend to him what to do, which is what he wants to do. Yeah. Is that being too cynical? Well, well, I think that, you know, the, 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 the reality of it is that, that the city council, um, uh, when it was ceded possession of, of, in 1996 by the federal government of, 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 the, uh, of the market, it was outlined in, in the letter that, you know, of succession that they were the custodians and that the QVM, the management team there, their, their responsibility is to the storeholders and traders and the consumer. Mm. Um, whereas what we're seeing them do is completely ignore the, the vast majority of storeholders and traders and, and uh, consumer wishes and, and proceed with a, an ideologically motivated land grab. Some of the stalls, Dave, have already gone. You know, the the far right stall on the um, the Peel Street side. Don't say yep. that word, far right, mate. Right, okay, sorry. Well, okay, coming, <laughs> looking at it from Peel Street, the far left colour side um, is uh, is uh, it hasn't been there for ages. There's now a bloke flogging mussels or something in that spot of takeaway mussels. Um, is that a sign of what's happening? Uh, how no, it, it, is, it is, Kevin. And, and you know what, what? What's been happening for a long while is death by a thousand cuts. Like a lot of the, a lot of the storehouses and traders been there, as you know, for generations. Um, they've not been in a position where they can invest because of the uncertainty, and they can't sell because of the uncertainty. So what they're doing is they're just shutting up shop. Mm. Yeah, there are there are there are whole vacant spots there now. So when there is a, a management team in place there. Uh, that can, can actually rebuild the market, um, well, advertise for it for a start, for the daytime market, not just the nighttime market, uh, then, then those holes need to be filled. People need to be either bought back in or, or new long-term, um, you know, storeholders and traders come in, making it a really, really vibrant place again, and, uh, and, and that's doable. But, you know, I, I think the big thing is that the storeholders and traders, they're not just saying no to, a, to, a, to a, uh, an aggressive plan, that are acting against their interests, they're, they're actually putting forward a, uh, you know, at least the, the strong beginnings of an alternative plan themselves, which would see uh, the market reboot and, uh, and really play a role, the value add on the waste, turning it through biodigesters, turning it into you know, green energy, looking at the idea of a cooperative that the National Unit of Workers is helping the storeholders and traders establish. Uh, which would provide energy not just for the market but 
a microgrid for the city that mm. the citizens of Melbourne can join. So, yeah. you know, they're really, they're a great proactive bunch of people and seeing that link with the union movement now um, has been very inspiring. Excellent. And, uh, yes, the, um, the union link, uh, just how strong is that? We've got uh, close to 300 stalls and traders now, members of the National Union of Workers now. Uh, that's a momentous situation to see, um, you know, small businesses mm. um, sort of uh, uh, understand that their their loyalties and their links and their, you know, their, their, their really their uh, their survival and and success uh, relies upon um, you know working people that that they are the allies of of working working people and working class culture is the thing mm. that keeps the, the market going. So, you know, it's um as I say it's a it's a formal sort of recognition of that that link and um and creating a, a really uh the, the potential for a massively powerful um if you like new newly organized sector in the australian economy where small business um you know signing on to a look looking at a charter of rights for for, for workers and and uh seeing their interests lying with the uh, organized labor movement and uh, not uh, multinational capital i think that that uh, in itself, leaving aside the issue of the market, is uh, one of the amazing things to, so far to come out of this struggle. Mm. So how many groups are involved in this in, in calling this rally on, on Friday? So you've got the uh, Friends of the Queen Victoria Market, um, with the National Union of Workers are calling the rally, and then people coming in supporting the Friends of the Queen Victoria Market, uh, the Earth Worker Cooperative, which, which brings people like me into it. Mm. Um, yeah, a, a range of organisations are coming in behind the Trades Hall, throwing its weight behind and Organising the sound system and truck and everything for the day, so you know it's um yeah look it's it's again it, it's we're still as far as we're concerned we're early days in a long struggle but but we're organising to win it and uh, to that extent I guess especially for the listening audience at 3CR um, by contacting me they can uh, have a face to face meeting because we are setting up um, a telephone tree that can respond. Uh, for direct action uh, when that's required. Uh, so we put a human ring around uh, to protect yeah, good, um, those good. parts of the physical market that we want to maintain. Uh, you know, uh, we're not going to let uh, let those things happen where they can come in at the dead of night and start knocking things over. So, mm. you know, uh, we intend to put our bodies in the way. Um, and we're confident that the uh, all the social movements, including the Australian Union, will respond when that occurs. Uh, the Greens on, the, on Melbourne Council, obviously, I presume they're on our side, are they? Um, they've still got some decisions to make, I reckon, that mob, and uh, um, I think they're in the process of doing that, and my understanding is there's some fairly uh, weighty debates going on. Um, but, uh, but look, you know, from across the spectrum, we're seeing uh, people... Uh, we're, we're seeing unlikely alliances go on, and uh, uh, we're seeing quite conservative people come out in, in support of uh, maintenance of the market and, and its, its improvement rather than this so-called renewal process. Um, and we're seeing, you know, um, some who maybe should know better, um, not clear on the issue at this stage is, is the way I would put it, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm confident that that, uh, that will change when, uh, when the sparks start flying. We haven't mentioned it, but this 200-metre development on the corner opposite the market that's been part of the debate, uh, that is pure overkill, isn't it? In terms of the development of the city, yeah, oh, look, I, I think you, you, you're right. I think all the things that Phil Cleary raised in, 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 the, uh, in, in his run for Lord Mayor, uh, you know, was on the right tram there. We need more um, low and medium density. Uh, we need the, 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 
buildings that are built to be green, um, you know, with the, you know, full of renewables that are actually pumping power out into the grid. We, we need all those sorts of things done. What we're going to get is, I think, yeah, you're right, more of the same. Mm. Um, it's against the advice not only of the green movement, but, I mean, unions have been advising to, you know, make these buildings more efficient for, for forever. Um, uh, so, yeah, look, we'll get more of it. I mean, the upside is there'll be a, a community of people right on the doorstep of the market who'll obviously, you know, shop there. That, that won't hurt. There'll be childcare and other facilities as well. But the main thing is, as you said before, we've got to hold on to what we've got left of the market and we've got to make sure it's maintained there in perpetuity. Yeah. And we also have mentioned, of course, a couple of the old historical facts. It was the original cemetery in Melbourne. Many, many people were buried there. Uh, and it also has, of course, an, and obviously has an Aboriginal tradition as well. Absolutely, it does. And, and um, I, I think people are being way too confident. My, my understanding and, and reading on the issue is that People are being way too confident as to where they reckon those bodies are buried. I mean, uh, you've only got to go, a, you know, a metre down and you start finding human remains. So, um, you know, in all sorts of ways, although QVM management are, are um, painting the picture that they've got everything worked out and that they're confident, of, you know, about all the details, they are simply not, and they don't know where they're going. They're like a rudderless ship. Mm. Yeah, so the details of the rally then, Dave? So we're meeting at 11.30 Friday, uh, right in the heart of the market, uh, where those roads intersect. And uh, we, uh, we'll start setting up at 11.30. Um, we're going to have uh, a battery storage trailer power up the, uh, the event, uh, could power up a rock concert with that, and the batteries in that will be one of the things that the storeholders and traders cooperative will, uh, will install around the market over the uh, years ahead. Mm. And, uh, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, 11.30, we, we start to set up. People will be arriving at 12 and then some at 12.30 uh, because, of course, it's also International Workers Memorial Day um, and at 10.30 up at, up at Trades Hall. Uh, so people are going to come down. Uh, yeah, people will be uh, uh, have some, some speakers and some music uh, available to them and uh, be in a position where they can just have a bit of a yarn and ask any questions they might have. No, it's, and it's 11.30 to 1, I think you're advertising it as, are you not? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. And so we want as many people, obviously, as possible to turn up and support the market. My word. And you gave, you talked about having lines, contact lines, etc. Are there any numbers available yet for those? Um, my, my number would be the one, uh, 0412 Mm-hmm. we just repeat that again. We'll get people get pens. Okay, 04... 0424 and and the other one, the the telephone tree line you mentioned, that's that's that'll come up in the future sometime. Yeah, and we'll, uh, yeah, that 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 same number. We'll yes. let, oh, okay, and we'll let people know it anyway when yeah. when that's available. Can I just take it before we go to to just one other um, area? Because I know with with Earthworker you've been involved with um, with Gippsland and the um, you know the loss of jobs down there, etc. Um, the the one that um, interesting one recently, of course, has been this Hayfield timber mill called Sustainable Timber. Now, my information is they were, when they got their last licence, they were told that they only had a certain amount of time anyway, which doesn't seem to be coming out in the news. But all what, what, both with Hazelwood and, and it, it seems to me there's an enormous um, argument. The, 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 the system itself argues that somehow 
once these things are closing, it's the state responsibility, the public purse responsibility to bail companies out and save workers, when I would have thought, having made money for decades, these companies have some responsibility in this area. Absolutely, and isn't, what, isn't that what we were saying at, at, at the time? Every, every privatisation we fought, that don't you remember, we bought this we up. Did. But, um, you know, one, they could never run massive infrastructures like this and make a profit. And two, when it came time for them to close, they throw everything, all the debt back on the public purse and, and of course, precisely what they've done. And, uh, look, as, as regards Hayfield, I, I, you know, I really feel for the workers involved there yet again. Mm. They, they have been put in the position of being the meat and the sandwich um, in all sorts of ways, um, let alone, the, you know, that deeply sort of um, deeply felt cultural sense um, being blamed for all sorts of things on the one hand and then, you know... Um, sort of uh, victims of, uh, of greed on the other. So, I mean, if there was ever a case, I suppose, for, you know, a workers and farmers cooperative, uh, it, would be at, uh, it would be at Hayfield. Um, we're open to that discussion uh, any time, day or night. Uh, the idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, a rational sawlog-based industry with uh, hemp and bamboo, uh, uh, you know, across, uh, across the existing... Uh, Land, available land, um, textile out of the hemp and bamboo, uh, you know, uh, clothes, the uniform work, workforces, firefighter, ambulance, uh, police, uh, construction, uh, already part of the UVA, so we don't have to fight for that. Um, the boss already pays the money for that clothing. Um, the workers' cooperatives can be making that. So we, we can value add on the existing role of the workers there, uh, turning it into a, a major, major um, uh, economic development development that's that's sustainable mm. um, and in the hands of the community owned and controlled by the Australian community not multinational has earth worker is earth worker sort of playing some sort of role with those workers at the moment or, or well, you're... Um, we're we're, uh, um, we're we're seeking discussions um, is, is all I can I suppose say at the moment and uh, and when I say we I mean I'm I'm off the board and out of things these days just an old coot just trying to back up. <laughs> oh, aren't we all, Dave? Aren't we yeah. all? <laughs> so I'm just sort of backing up from the edges, Kev. But the, the, the younger leaders who've, uh, who 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 are running the show in there, um, yes, of course, uh, it's a it's a very exciting time down in Gippsland. Um, the the, uh, the the options are beginning to open up there now um, uh, under the impact of, of Hazelwood. Uh, but when you combine that th- throughout uh, Gippsland, that the potential is is enormous. Um, and, you know, the important thing for us is not just getting the, the renewables going and not just getting the, you know, uh, the energy question uh, dealt with rationally, but the question of ownership and uh, l- looking at making sure that, that we make the stuff here and that what we make and the way we make it is in the hands of the Australian people. And I suspect the sustainable in the company's name mightn't be quite up to what it says. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dave. Well, look, good luck with Friday. I'm doubt I'll see you there. I'll, I'll turn up at the market on Friday. I might even do my Saturday shopping on Friday this week while I'm there. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll be doing the same. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right. Dave. Well, look, thanks for your time this morning and good luck, and um, we'll keep in touch on it. Good on you, Keith. Thank, okay. Thanks very much. It was no, great. Very interesting. See you now. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Dave Kerrin there, who's, as I say, well, I think you can tell from the interview, he's been a long-term campaigner around so many issues, and... Um, 
in the market. So that's 11.30 Friday, and as many people as possible can get there. I recommend we get down and save our market. Um, take a break, come back, and he was talking about battery storage and etc. We're going to discuss such issues with Paddy Moriarty after this break. May Day Workers' Day celebration, Sunday, May the 7th. Join us to protest the anti-worker policies of the federal government and the drive to war by the US administration. March with unions, Aboriginal organisations, community and ethnic communities and others. March from Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street, Carlton, 1.30pm, followed by a speaker's platform with entertainment, afternoon tea and a concert. Sunday, May the 7th, Trades Hall, 1.30 start. The May Day Committee is a 3CR supporter. Help save the Victoria market. Join a rally Friday, April 28th from 11.30am to 1pm. Support the stallholders and the traders to have a say in the future development of our market. Trade union and community support save the Victoria market once and we can do it again. Do your bit to make sure the market stays there as an affordable space. Hear directly from stallholders, the NUW, the Friends of the Queen Victoria Market and the Earthworker Cooperative. Hear about plans to build a cooperative and put renewable technologies into the market. Support the community who want to maintain and improve this much-loved open-air market. Friday, April the 28th from 11.30am to 1pm. 513 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. The National Union of Workers is a 3CR supporter. Okay, and on the line, Paddy Moriarty. Um, he loves being called Professor Moriarty these days for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> Paddy, um, still out at Monash, are you? Obviously, yes. this year, another year, another year, another <laughs> more research. I've got a few things I want to talk to you about. We haven't caught up for a while. So, is there anything you've been doing that you want to run past us that you think's well, interesting? I've, uh, just had a few interviews with uh, the uh, Guardian Online and uh, Japanese newspaper uh, Ashai Shimbun about the uh, coals of oil, or sorry, the, coal, the proposed coals of hydrogen plant in the, uh, in the La Trobe Valley, which uh, Kawasaki Heavy Industries are interested in, in doing. Mm-hmm. Detail, come on. Um, yeah, well, the, the idea is because uh, uh, Hazelwood is closing down, it's, uh, the, the state government, I think, is looking at, uh, uh, at trying to create um, value there and more employment and so on to replace the, uh, the jobs that are lost. Um, as you know, there's a history of uh, talk about the brown coal. It was going to be uh, coal to oil, I think, uh, three, uh, 30 odd years ago. That's what they were talking about. Now mm. it's, um, it's, it's coal to hydrogen and um, uh, brown coal to hydrogen. Of course, it's, um, you know, the thing is that uh, hydrogen is supposed to be green and so on. But what, and, <clears throat> what, what's the impact? Um, you think you're using brown coal. What's the impact on the environment of the whole process? Well, um, obviously, the plant would be newer than the Hazelwood Power Station, so that would be a plus, I guess. But um, basically, uh, the clean fuel, that is the, um, 
the uh, hydrogen would be uh, liquefied and shipped to Japan and uh, we'd be left to bury the uh, carbon dioxide, presumably. If it's going to be clean mm. fuel, then you'd have to do that. The point is that whether you burn uh, brown coal in a in an in a, a electric um, power plant, or you convert it to hydrogen, the amount of carbon produced per tonne of coal used is exactly the same. The only thing that could differ is the efficiency of use. Um, now, uh, I mean, brown coal to electricity is not very efficient. In fact, it's probably only about 23% of the uh, energy of brown coal in the ground finishes up at the power point, which is not a, a, a very high conversion uh, efficiency. The trouble is that with um, uh, hydrogen, you'd have to liquefy it and um, and then convert it much the same way as the liquefied natural gas is is um, is taken to Japan. Um, with liquefied natural gas, there's a small amount of uh, uh, what they call um, burn-off. In other words, some of it gasifies and they use that to power the, the ship. The same presumably would be done with hydrogen. When you get there, you've got to... Dist- let's say it was going to be used for transport. You have to distribute it to the... Um, uh, to the... Uh, fuel stations and, you know, the, the, the petrol pumps. And if you use uh, trucks to transport liquid, liquid hydrogen, uh, then all the efficiency gains you get from converting to hydrogen would, would be lost. Plus the fact that um, the United States government, or previous one, <laughs> advised that um, uh, 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 or that uh, you, trying to use either compressed hydrogen or liquid hydrogen in vehicles is not on. They they just think that 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 those are just not uh, technically appropriate. Mm. So um, it's hard to see what they could use hydrogen for. They, I mean, you could use it for. Um, ships and uh, trains and things like that, large um, uh, transport vehicles where where uh, storage wasn't a problem. You, you could also use it for stationary uh, power generation in uh, hydrogen fuel cells. But as I say, overall, um, you'd still be left with the carbon dioxide and um, at presently, nobody, uh, carbon capture and storage, there are something like, I think something like 40 million tonnes a year uh, are buried and um, we produce about the world that is produces about 35,000 million tonnes of carbon dioxide so <laughs> after 25 years of talking about it we haven't got anywhere on that and I don't think we, we will. I thought we must have because in an announcement recently Donald Trump talked about beautiful clean coal he said so it must be clean uh, Yeah uh, well it would be for Japan He's the President of the United States <laughs> <laughs> Yeah even there people think like People don't think that um, it's going to lead to a, uh, a, a resurgence of coal-fired plants in America. Um, natural gas plants are probably cheaper to run and the locals like them better. And given that fracking is producing some gas, now for how long, I don't know, but um, the economics seems to point to uh, to, uh, to natural gas for, uh, for, for fossil fuel power plants rather than coal. Uh, natural gas can be burnt at higher efficiency because you can use um, gas turbines uh, which are more efficient than the ordinary yeah. uh, heat engines. Yeah, Some years ago when we were first talking about hydrogen as a fuel for uh, transport, uh, the the major problem seemed to be that it actually blew up and exploded and that was a bit of a problem. Um, has that been overcome? I don't think that's a real problem. Um, I mean, you, you would have to worry about... Uh, leakage i guess see the trouble is that if you, uh, hydrogen is a, a very small molecule it's the lightest element 
which is a plus. But the point is it liquefies at a very low temperature, so there's a huge amount of energy required to liquefy it. Also, if you compress hydrogen, you then have to store it in gas bottles in much the same way as um, uh, tradesmen have got, you know, acetylene bottles and um, bottles for oxygen, you know, those heavy steel mm-hmm. cylinders. Now, they're tradesmen, and the idea is that the, the ordinary punter around the world would have to put put these bottles in their vehicles, some of which could be 20 years old and so on. And there is a question of what would happen in accidents and so on. So, yes, you would have to consider that. But uh, basically, um, the only safe way or, or the, of storing hydrogen on board is to have it as metal hydrides. The idea is generally, the, say, you might use... Um, you'd have a whole lot of iron filings and the hydrogen would be absorbed on the surface of this and a gentle heat from your exhaust gas, for instance, would then release it for fuel. The trouble is you're then taking, having to carry around a huge pile of iron filings and you're back with the battery problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the hydrogen is the lightest molecule. <laughs> and then you have to carry around metal, uh, steel or iron, which is one of the heavier ones. Right? Can, so, we, can we summarise, Paddy, by suggesting you're saying this isn't such a great idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so you, 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 it'll work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Look, um, we talked to Dave Kerrin as we, the earlier interview on this program We've got a protest at Vic Market on uh, about the changes to Vic Market or protesting oh, yeah, about them on yeah. Friday, but the pro- the rally, which is going to have music etc., is going to be charged up by uh, battery storage. Um, it's a renewable situation, and um, which brings us to battery storage because South Australia, as you know, is talking about I think it's a hundred kilowatt or something, isn't it, of battery storage um, to, because of the problems they had earlier this year. Uh, is this oh, is this oh, viable? hundred kilowatt won't go. Oh, whatever, hundred whatever <laughs> mega, megawatts or whatever money thing is, yeah, whatever the thing is. You're talking to me, Paddy, don't, don't get yeah, too yeah, technical. Know, yeah. um, the, um, whatever, whatever it is, a hundred something, I know. Um, we, um, is this viable now, do you think? Because I know you've always been a bit suspect about the potential for battery storage long term. Um, well, battery, the trouble is with batteries, they have to do so many things together. One, they have to have a long life. In other words, they have to be able to be recycled um, often. And uh, each... There are chemical changes that occur in the battery each time it does get recycled, and so they can, um, you know, they often can uh, fail after a thousand or so cycles. So lead acid battery isn't too bad for that one. It's been a standby for a long while. So there's that. Uh, durability is one, is the first problem. The second is safety, um, which depends upon, for instance, um, the uh, uh, some batteries use... Um, like the sodium sulfur battery that the general the Ford developed um, would have had uh, safety problems. Some of them require higher temperatures. Uh, it depends whether you're talking about stationary um, storage or storage for for vehicles. Obviously, stationary storage is a lot easier since you don't have to worry about uh, the weight of the of the uh, or, or the the, uh, the density of the um, of storage and so on. Um, then there's cost. Um, you know, it has to be able to compete with uh, other ways of producing energy or energy conservation. And the other one is um, whether the materials that, that, that you use to uh, for the batteries or storage medium are, in fact, um, readily available worldwide. In other words, whether the, they could be used by the whole world or whether it's just ever going to be a niche uh, thing. Mm. Um, well, well, the South yeah. Australian one's the one proposed by Don Musk of Tesla, but there's a number of companies involved in this, as we know, um, providing these things. But so that one he's talking about, which is storage for the state to use as part of its grid, is is that um, is that viable? Uh, 
He well, says he. I heard that, well, yeah. I heard that one of the proposals was, of course, to have um, pumped water storage by having uh, on the cliffs in uh, on the Australian Bight to to have water um, to pump water up there and then run it back down to the sea. Mm. The uh, the trouble is, of course, that you that you would have to um, you, you would have to build the. Uh, uh, the the, uh, the storage basin. Um, normally, pumped water storage occurs in mountainous areas, and you only have to um, close off one side. But if you have to build, uh, if if you have to build it uh, on flat land, then, and then that's going to be um, a lot of energy is going to go into mm. that. So, into getting it up to no, come down again. Yeah, well, well, that's okay. The idea is that if you have intermittent energy, then you pump it up when you've got when the sun's shining and run it back down to the sea. Uh, from the cliffs when it's uh, when it's not right. That's uh, that's the idea of storage. There's always some energy lost in transferring transferring energy from one form, for instance, uh, electrical energy to 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 chemical energy in battery or or or, or a gravitational energy in a um, uh, at a higher ele- elevation and so on. Uh, you know, this could be say 80 percent or so efficient the, the round trip. So you're always going to lose some, but you are going to get energy when you need it rather than just when the wind blows or when the sun shines. Yeah, and of course batteries do uh, have a lifespan. So I suppose if they're fairly costly to put in, and they, you know, they last X number of years. I'm not sure how many, but um, at some point you've got to renew them anyway, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, if you have, I mean, thing like pump water storage, that's not quite the same problem, right? Mm. Um, but yes, but but for batteries, uh, that is the problem. They have a finite life, and then you've got to buy some new ones, and also, of course, in, in dispose of of the old ones or, or recycle the material. Yeah, that's. Uh, and I want to come to that shortly. But there, there is a bloke in Sydney, and I just read some, art, some bits of this article. Uh, a Sydney-based startup is poised to unveil what it says is a world-first energy-on-demand system that goes well beyond a typical battery and pays for itself in less than a third of the time. Um, the Newcastle plant, I'm reading this into Ralea, but the Newcastle plant with the capacity to produce energy for 30 average homes, this is one they're setting up as a test thing, uh, he says a fridge-sized scaled-down version suitable to be installed within a home is to develop within 18 months. Uh, now, they say the plant developed jointly by... Infratech Industries and the University of Newcastle is being hailed by Infratech as offering a solution to Australia's energy crisis. It moves past a traditional energy storage device to include heating and cooling, oxygen and hydrogen generation, overcoming issues about predictable generation and environmental side effects that plague other energy and storage systems. Now, this is the company talking, of course. Um, but they say it. the plant involves pushing compressed air. This is the bit where you come in, Paddy. You can explain this to me. Involves pushing compressed air through a particle system enclosed in a patent-protected cartridge, oxidising the particles to produce heat and hot air to drive a turbine. The particles then reduce, producing oxygen and or hydrogen. The unit can be configured differently depending on whether oxygen is wanted as a byproduct or hydrogen, making it significant for a future transportation system based on hydrogen fuel cells. Comment on all that? Um, yeah, it sounds a bit complicated. Uh, generally, uh, like you started off talking about uh, it for the home, I think. Yeah, well, they, they say it can be for the home as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certainly, um, you do need to look at uh, look at these things from a, from a system point of view, which they seem to be doing. In other words, the home has demand for you know uh, heat or sometimes... Um, uh, and if you can get that from, um, well, for instance, uh, electric light bulbs provided with some heat, or they used to when you had mm. the less efficient <laughs> right. ones. Yeah. Uh, so so um, now, um, 
producing hydrogen for the home. Um, in the old days, in fact, I think in Germany, well, as you know, town gas, which was before we, we started using bastrate gas and natural gas, now that was a mixture of carbon dioxide and, and hydrogen, right, rather than methane, which is what we use today. So, um, and I believe in Germany, hydrogen was available on demand uh, in houses. In other words, you can use it much the same way as natural gas. Um, hydrogen in vehicles, uh, that was the second thing. Uh, it depends what size the unit is and, and what it weighs and so on. Both volume and, um, story and storage volume and weight are important for uh, these in vehicles. Now, there's two things here. One, there is the conversion device itself, which you might refer to as the engine, but there's also, there is also the actual need to store the hydrogen. And uh, so whether they've solved that problem for vehicles, which is the one I talked about before, is the real problem. In other words, you know, do you have, still have to carry around a, a heavy and, and dangerous mm. uh, metal gas bottles or not? Yeah, I think that's what, that's one. Does, let's watch and see if they they can do what they say it'll do. I guess. Yeah. Um, now, these batteries, of course, the modern ones with lithium, they're, all, they're continually trying to find even new materials that are better. Um, are there problems? One in in some. I know some of these rare metals, as they call them, are are being uh, mined in, say, third world countries where one suspects the workers aren't treated too well. Um, and secondly, are, are, are they major problems of disposal at the end of the end of the life? Well, lithium is lithium is the lightest metal. I mean, hydrogen is the lightest element. With you, but lithium is the lightest metal, and therefore that's why they want to use it. For, uh, for batteries, especially vehicle batteries and um, personal, you know, um, computers um, or smartphones and so on, because it, it is it cuts down the weight of the uh, of the of the battery. It's not it's um it's a fair bit in seawater as well. Of course, the, the cost of extracting it and that could be high. Mm. But uh, lithium is not. Some have argued that it is that it is scarce, that it, or that it will get scarce if it's used. I mean, presently mobile phone batteries are pretty small, so those sort of uses don't add up to a lot. But if you, um, if the world's vehicles had to run on, let's say, all the one and a half thousand vehicles in the world um, ran on um, used lithium batteries, then that w- would be another matter. One and a half thousand? You mean one of those more than that, Patty? Yes, so one and a half, uh, one and a half thousand million. Right? Oh, a million! I mean, you, uh, you left the million out. Sorry. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about friends. Here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes, uh, there are there are a thousand million cars already in the world in various states of repair, I guess, <laughs> and there may be even another five hundred million um, commercial vehicles and buses, trucks, and so on. So that's a lot of batteries uh, and a lot of tonnage of, of uh, lithium. So it depends. When you say it's not in short supply, it depends. You know whether you're talking mm. about um, just a niche market or the whole world converting mm. to that. Is it a problem disposing of those batteries at the end of their life, though, or are they, are they much safer than current batteries? Um, lithium batteries. One of the problems uh, is that they had a distressing tendency to catch fire. Um, that's a, that's in fact, there's a patented definite, for definite handicap there. Yeah, mm. for airlines, they now have a thing. They've patented some device that doesn't stop the batteries catching fire, but it, they've got some container that you can drop the battery in, <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it burns in that. Right? Mm. Was that, was that the problem with it? Was Senyo or someone, their mobile phones were having a problem. Was that the problem with those? Yeah, you see, what, the problem is this, that you're trying to 
have a battery as small as possible, but the trouble is heat management inside that battery. I mentioned before that they're not 100% con- uh, efficient in converting, say, electricity when you plug your um, your battery into your um, power point and then it's stored in, in a chemical energy in the battery and then it's um, that chemical energy then is reconverted into electricity to drive your mobile phone or whatever, or, or, or your car. Uh, now, any... If a thing is only 80% uh, efficient in its conversion, then the, then the other 20% is given off as heat. And if you have a very small battery, heat management can be very hard to do. It can be very hard to 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 ever get rid of that heat, and that explains why in some cases these things catch fire. Mm. So while a lot of people are saying, well, battery storage is, is increasing all the time, or you the the um, the knowledge of etc. the development of is is getting better and better. Uh, you're suggesting there are still problems, obviously. Well, I mean, for for a while they talked about you know that lithium was the obvious thing to to uh, focus on. The trouble is that there are too many good solutions. There, there have been hundreds of different battery types suggested. For instance, um, metal air ones, which function much the same way as um, hand warmers. You, you know, you have. Uh, let me think. You have pure metal, and and then you let it um, say aluminium, and you let it oxidise. And this can you can drive um, you can produce electric currents this way somehow. I've forgotten how I used to know. But the point is that, and there are there are hundreds of others that have been um, that have been proposed and even used. But we're still well, cars still pretty well function with lead acid batteries, which have been around for over a hundred years. Even the hydrogen. Uh, the hydrogen fuel cell idea, or the, or the idea of a fuel cell, was invented by the Reverend Groves, I think, in 1830. So it's been a long time coming into fruition. Right. Yes. <laughs> Taken a while. So speaking yeah. of speaking of transport, um, uh, you, you have over the years done a lot of research about transport in Melbourne and the use of cars, and you've argued that on a per capita basis, there's actually been a decrease in the use of cars. Is, yes. is that, well, well, is that still happening? Trend. Is, is well, that it still happening? It's um, the trouble is that nobody counts car traffic very well, right? <laughs> but uh, yes, it does. But it does appear to be happening in a number of in a number of OECD countries uh, that there's been a slight decrease. This is in per capita uh, passenger travel by car. Yes, mm. um, air travel is still increasing. Uh, I think it's all globally. It's mainly happening in. Uh, and non-OECD countries, but I think they're projecting a 4.5% increase, which is based on past trends per year, which is pretty high. Mm. Uh, that's in uh, global growth, so that's um, you know 3 and a bit percent uh, per capita growth. And yet we're still seeing um, government policy and business policy intent on building more and more roads and freeways. Well, the, the trouble is, uh, because of Melbourne's astonishing population growth, um, the, the, the fact that per capita travel is is a bit decreasing is counteracted by by the mm. fact that, that there are a lot more per capitas round. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and also, I don't know what's happening with occupancy rate, but um, that could still be falling a bit uh, as because household size is continue continuing to fall. And it turns out that occupancy rate for cars and occupancy rate for houses are very tightly correlated. Yeah, so, uh, well, pity uh, Mark Allen might be back for a couple of weeks, but he would have jumped in there because the population increase is something he's deeply concerned about. Um, do, yeah. we, do, we need, so do we need to control both the population increase um, and therefore the use of, use of cars as a form of getting around? Well, we'll, 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 we'll just look at the, at the difference between, say, cars and trains. 
with trains, um, only one train is allowed to be in one block at one time, right? They actually control that. In cars, you buy a car and they say, well, uh, uh, take a punt. If you can get on the road, good. If you can't, that's not our problem, right? <laughs> so in other words, what we have is a whole lot of... I mean, obviously there's more room in the outer suburbs, but, but travel in the inner area, which is, you know, probably... A, um, we're talking about maybe several hundred square kilometres. Increasingly, you can't build more roads here because there's just not much space. Mm. And... Um, you're getting more and more cars trying to use it. So it's no wonder that uh, roads are getting clagged up a Well, of bit. course, they're now resorting to tunnels to overcome that problem, so you go under. Um, yeah, but they still have to come out somewhere. We aren't yeah, that's, old. Right. that's right. Well, that's, 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 the, that's where their, their argument falls down, isn't it? At the point where it comes, it comes out, there's still a major problem. Well, well, I think as long as we have the population growth rate we have and the car ownership levels we have, we're not going to solve this problem, no. Mm. All right, Paddy, look, time's up, but um, we'll, we'll follow this up, no doubt. And when Mark gets Mark's back in a couple of weeks, and when he does, I think we'll get onto it again because he'd love to debate that, or not debate it with you, but discuss it with you for sure, yeah. Okay, well, good. All right, Paddy, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, Bye. thank you. That was um, Paddy Moriarty from Monash, who's uh, he's Professor Monash. I meant to ask him about cuts to edu- tertiary education. I forgot. We'll do that next time. Okay, that's the show for today. Um, Lynn, thanks a lot. You didn't get in to ask a lot of questions today, but you'll pick up as you... No, um, I'm just working on the still, panel and yeah. also having a problem with a cough, so I had to that's go right. outside a couple of times. Yeah, I noticed so. that. Once, but <laughs> once you're on top of the panel situation, well, you'll certainly get much more involved. Okay, next week's our normal transport week, so I'll be talking to John McPherson, who'll be in here on transport issues. And um, there was, oh, we, we'll probably be talking about some West or some, some issues out in the... Um, in the northwestern suburbs, with hopefully with Helen Vandenberg next week as well. So that's next week's program. And um, thanks, uh, Lynn, for doing such a great no. job. Thanks, Andy, for doing such a great job. And uh, next week, goodbye. Okay, bye. Thank you. <laughs>